Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another fantastic episode of the Super Science Happy Hour with Matt and Matt. I'm Matt Krause. And I'm Matt Johnson. All right, so today we're going to talk about some of the recent crackpot science we've seen, including a study on Facebook. <laughs> None of the crackpot science that we have done in our actual labs, mind you. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so a study of Facebook, which you may have seen on Facebook. A study about hurricanes and hemicanes, which has also been going around various forms of social media. We'll complain about peer review and some of our competitors, and also Jennifer Aniston. And much, much more. I am a scientist, I seek to understand me. All of my impurities and evils yet unknown. I am a journalist, I write to you. What do you want to talk about? Well, uh, if you've got the show notes up, the... <laughs> all 37 pages of them. In, in all honesty, I think we had, I just counted, actually. I think we have seven pages of links. But a lot of them are pretty quick if we can avoid... Well, I was going to say if we can avoid getting off topic. But, uh, of course, all of you know by now that that's not going to happen. But yeah, do you want to go through? We have we have like both of us have a bunch of rants of fairly topical studies that have come out recently. Do we want to just move through the rants relatively quickly? Yeah. You you want to lead off with the Facebook thing? Yeah, I'm sure everyone actually listening to us has probably seen the coverage of this because it's gone all around Facebook already, and I'm assuming all of our listeners like us and follow us on Facebook and all this stuff. But I mean, it's a pretty simple thing to talk about. Facebook just published a paper in the fairly prestigious journal PNAS, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, where they they basically over a period of a week, about a what was it, about a year or two ago, I think it was in 2011 if I remember correctly, they manipulated the contents of people's timelines to include slightly more slightly slightly more positive content or slightly more negative content. And then tracked how that affected their own posts over the the following week or so. And they found that including more positive content made people's moods more positive and including more negative content made people's moods more negative. So that's the basic finding. But then the, the backlash was basically that there was much hubbub about whether they got approval for this study and whether it was ethical and all this stuff. Is that a fairly accurate recap? That sounds pretty good. So I guess there are three different strands of outrage. So I'll take the easiest one first. <laughs> okay. The first, well, there's no effect. The effect size is minuscule. It's like, I think it's a Cohen's D of like 0.01. Well, in their defense, they only had 689,003 participants. So, you know. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's tough to get all that in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, granted, like, their manipulation was also fairly subtle, and I think deliberately so. I don't think um, one group of people got all genocide and you know and drowning kittens for a week, and one group got all I don't know what the opposite of that is ice cream and and baby baby hugs, undrowned kittens, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yes, kittens, kittens miraculously uh, returning from the dead in a non-zombie-like fashion. That would be the awesomest indicator variable ever. <laughs> yeah. So here, I found the paper. I'll just read from the conclusion. 
All of these data provide blah, 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 some for the first experimental evidence to support the controversial claims that emotions can spread, which is a little bit surprising. The effect size from the emotions are small, as small as D equals 0.001. So it's actually 10 times smaller than I thought, and I already thought it was really small. <laughs> That's what she said. I'm glad I left you a pause there. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Well, so... you got to leave me room to stick it in. <laughs> That's not what she said. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, it took, oh, it was uh, January 11th to 18th, 2012, a week during which I, for one, was elated. I don't know about you. Yeah, so, in their defense, like, classifying the sentiment of a small piece of text is really, really hard. Well, you've got some experience in this, right? Yeah, so this was one of my senior projecty things as an undergrad, where I tried to take movie reviews and predict how many stars the reviewer would give the reviewer, uh, would give the movie based on their review. Oh, I didn't, re- I didn't know you did that, actually. That's pretty cool. So, like, automated Rotten Tomatoes, basically. Yeah, well, actually, that's the idea behind Rotten Tomatoes, or at least initially. That's what they were going to do. Oh, they were going to fully automate it rather than... Yeah. I assume now they just have, like, human reviewers who, who translate everything into a star rating, right? I think pretty much, or they just, like, they know that, you know, New York Times gives it out of this many stars, Chicago Sun Tribune gives it out of this many stars, and then they have some normalization thing. Yeah. But it's actually really hard to do for movies, because... Like, a lot of the negative words, so you think if you see, like, bad or uh, horrible or whatever, that should be pretty unambiguous that it's a negative review. But especially for movies, you have a lot of genre things, like, you know, Mark Wahlberg is a bad cop. or Right. Well, and it's also, you know, I guess it's not the hardest thing in the world to look for negations of those words. But, you know, if if I say something like, this wasn't the most horrible movie I've ever seen, or that's a bad example because it's not exactly a ringing endorsement, but... You know, you can separate the negation fairly far in the sentence from oh yeah, the word, right? So that it could be hard for something that doesn't that's not a full-scale English parser to to actually, you know, figure out. Well, right. So, so you have negations like that, then you have things that are talking about like in the film world versus in the actual movie. And then I actually wrote up like basically why my system sucked at the end. And another <laughs> thing that was surprisingly common was that you get a lot of sort of meta commentary, like, you know, this actor's last four movies were all terrible. Oh, right. So this one, in light of those, is surprisingly good. And then that gives you like basically no information about the star, but it has a lot of negative words or maybe a lot of positive words. Or you say that, you know, like it's based on this best-selling book, but it's absolutely terrible. So yeah, it was surprisingly hard. I think this has become a big business now because like companies want to dive in on this to get a... Is the person sending us tweets or email like, right. happy... Or are they really pissed, so we should send them some free stuff? Did you... Uh, sorry, I just want to clarify. Did you say that it was surprisingly hard? Yeah, it was surprising. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, moving on. Oh, that's what she said. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> I needed that resolution. To the moving on. Okay. hey yo. Okay. Oh, that was like, that was like, that's what she said. That was like a, a, a Russian nesting doll of that's what she said. <laughs> Uh, mail order rushing nesting <laughs> yeah um so i'm looking at the actual pdf now uh you know i don't know if you looked at this but they now have appended an editorial expression of concern to the article two actually at least for me it says a correction has been published a correction has been published <laughs> those responsible to... for the correction have been sacked, <laughs> have been sacked yes <laughs> okay so yeah so that that's thread of outrage number one that uh i think i'm probably the only one who cares about but i figured i would share it yeah. Threat of outrage number two is that 
this is sort of maybe unethical to make people very sad. Although, well, in light of the fact that the effect size is basically zero, I don't know how much I care about that. But there is this whole procedure for getting informed consent, and maybe you should talk about that as you are maybe more involved in it. Well, we've both had our adventures in informed consent before, I think. You know, it's it's a tricky it's a tricky. Well, we talked about this actually, I think, before on a previous podcast with the Liz Phelps uh, electric shock study. But there's a um, a little fellow by the name of um, Hitler, and uh, he conducted <laughs> along with <laughs> along with his uh, compatriots uh, Mengele and so forth. Where um, I don't know if people know this, but they did some bad stuff, um, and largely in response to some of the the terrible things that they did. You know, one of the many things that came out of that era was um, a, a focus on maybe somewhat more responsible research standards. And uh, and there are a number, I guess we don't have time to review it right now, but there have been a number of relatively egregious, unethical things done in studies over the years. And, uh, you know, concern was expressed and became uh, the cultural norm thanks to, uh, what is it called, the, the Nuremberg Code, I believe. Is that right? That doesn't sound right to me. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's, that's the, right. also the no following orders thing. Right. It's the Declaration of uh, Helsinki. The Helsinki. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Which came out of, which was the subsequent thing. Right. The basic idea is that people who are involved in research, in most cases, need to provide informed consent. And there are all kinds of caveats and so forth. So if it's, if you're making use of like publicly available census data that's not linked to any particular individual, you obviously don't need to come around and, and get everyone's consent for that or... There, and there are cases where, in, in rare circumstances, you might want to, like, covertly uh, monitor people, you know, in a public setting or something like that so as to not give away the uh, give away the, the point of the research or whatever. And, you know, you can get those approved. But basically, you know, every study is supposed to be submitted to a, an internal review board, an institutional review board in, in the uh, parlance of our times. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that, you know, basically reviews every proposed study and decides whether or not it is ethically allowable and, you know, whether you're getting consent the right way and everything's all right. And if you have to deceive people, you know, deception is pretty common, right? Like, I don't want to tip my hat, but uh, quite a few studies I run have a surprise memory test at the end that we don't tell people about at the beginning because we don't want people trying to memorize things from memory test. You know, so like that that's not a big deal. But you have to explain at the end why you deceive people in that way and, and things like that. But anyway, yeah. So an issue was raised as to whether or not Facebook stepped over the line in manipulating people's emotions and did not did not explicitly get their consent in one sense, at least. Yeah. Well, so there's a couple of ways out for them. So one of it is that they say that, that they had one line in their massive terms of service that says you allow your data to be used for research. But no one has ever actually read that in its entirety. <laughs> right. I mean, and, you know, it's a little funny because we all know that our social media data are being used in research in one sense, right? Like we apparently they figured out that I like local sexy singles in my area because I get ads for that all the time. Right. Or maybe that's just universal. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like obviously we know that our stuff is all being fed into a massive market research algorithm, but suddenly when it comes to publishable scientific research, the standard shifts, which is a little bit funny, right? Well, yeah. So, so I guess the laws that implement all this IRB stuff 
have a very specific definition of research that doesn't include like things you would do for your own company. Like the idea is you have to produce some sort of like general generalizable publishable thing. Right. So it's a little bit weird, right? Because like if I'm experimenting on you to sell you stuff, I actually don't have to be as ethical as if I want to publish research in a popular and uh, well-renowned scientific publication for the good of humanity. Right. And it leads to weird things where like, you know, if you're going to count how many times someone clicks on this in order to sell them Papa John's pizza, that's totally cool. But if you want to say something about how to make people happier, not so much. Yeah. So that's a little bit weird. In a similar vein, did you see uh, yesterday's XKCD? Or not yesterday, Friday's? Uh, no, I'm a little behind in those. What was that one? Get on it, get on it. We have time. Let me also just interject once more. That's what she said. <laughs> oh, you... you know, that joke, God, uh, so far has not yet gotten old for me. That's what she said. Uh, so let's see. What's the? This is not darkness. It's the one from Friday. Oh, here we go. Research ethics. I guess we could just read it aloud. So, the ponytail one says, Facebook shouldn't choose what stuff to show us to conduct unethical psychological research. They should just um, make those decisions based on uh, however they're doing it before, which was uh, ethical, right? I mean, it's true, right? It's not like you were harmed by this in any way, right? And the mouse over text says, I mean, it's not like we could just demand to see the code that's governing our lives. What right do we have to post around, poke around in Facebook's private affairs like that? Uh, yeah, I, I this is not my top concern. I think people probably overreacted a little bit. It probably went a little over viral. I'm, ju- I'm still trying to look in the paper. Well, if you'd like to get to this overreaction. So there's a third strain of outrage that's sort of floating around on the Internet. This was funded by some DOD grant to one of these people. Okay, I didn't know this one, actually, yeah. And apparently, you know, this is because the DoD is pure evil, and they're using it to manipulate our brains. Ah, clearly. I mean, I guess I can say that I have taken DoD money on several occasions, and I am not trying to manipulate your brain. And, I mean, they made the internet. They fund all sorts of random things. Well, in a way, you are trying to manipulate brains. Well, I am now, but not yours. (laughs) And not without consent. You're not going to come around sticking your electrodes in someone that doesn't know what's coming. I mean, the animals haven't signed anything, but, you know, well, they, know they know. They've they've made marks on things. <laughs> I count the feces as signature. <laughs> it is uh, personally identifiable. It's true. They, he's just signing stuff all over the place. <laughs> he signed the whole room. So this is related to absolutely nothing, but apparently anything that you sign as a check counts as a check. And there's a court case where a pissed-off farmer... you can, like, write a check on any... Wait, wait, wait for it. Wait for it. Okay. So this farmer was really angry at having to pay something, and he wrote a check on the side of a cow, <laughs> and it was eventually deemed to be a valid check because you know it like signaled his intent to pay the debt, even if he was doing it in the most obnoxious and difficult to handle manner. That's going to be hard to get into the slot in the uh, all night ATM. It sounds like a challenge. <laughs> it says I didn't fold it enough. <laughs> Well, you know, and I, if that's the case, I guess you could pay your gratuity at a restaurant in a similar manner, and that would be uh, cow tipping. Uh, I need to download a wave for that. All right, so I, I think that wraps up my rants about Facebook. Yeah, uh, the only thing I wanted to... So, yeah, I, uh, you know, that's just a little bit conspiracy theory-ish. Uh, so, in the end, I guess, what's our what's our conclusion? Did they act unethically, or... 
I mean, I think it's true that this is not a big deal. It's not like, um, you know, what is it, the Tuskegee syphilis study where they claim to be treating guys for syphilis. By the way, these were all uh, African Americans. I think it was there were no white people harmed in this study, but plenty of of non-white people. <laughs> Please make it better. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and they were like, "Oh yeah, we're totally treating your syphilis," and you know, in fact, they were not, and just uh, studying what happened to these people as they died from syphilis. So that was that was a very bad ethical violation. This is not. It's not like in a pra- practical matter like that big of a deal. But I guess did they did did we decide that they did or did not actually do a, a naughty. I think it's, I mean, it's sort of on the edge. I think it's not a big deal. It's, you know, sort of like, I don't know, speeding yeah. or something. Probably shouldn't be done in an official capacity. But, I mean, the bigger scandal to me is that this paper is objectively terrible and shouldn't be in PNAS. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like just over the line from a null effect. And if they're taking null effects now, I have like a whole a hard drive <laughs> of things I need to send in. Right. Yeah, and it's clearly a little bit obvious too, right? Like I think I think there have been better studies even in light of their own data. So they have this thing where they cite this long analysis of the Framingham Heart study, which is this crazy study where they track people for I think 20 years to see like okay. uh, cardiovascular stuff, but they also had surveys about whether or not you were happy. And I I think that was sort of known from that. And like, you know, if you've ever dated someone, you know that unhappiness unhappiness spreads very quickly i don't have any um yeah i don't have any direct studies at my fingertips for this but emotional priming is not a particularly surprising finding right like you can embed a positive or negative word in like a story people read and then you know affect their happiness ratings on a survey later on or whatever in just like a one-hour session so what what i'm seeing this paper is also remarkably short it's what like three pages long in pnas and most of that is like intro and well actually it's not even three full pages do you think they're posting the paper to certain people to see if it makes them unhappy i mean it's <laughs> it's very successfully worked for me well yeah i was gonna say I, I that was my twitter response to this is a study by me has determined that manipulating people's emotions makes everyone angry <laughs> without telling them we should submit that yeah the thing is, like... It's also very light on details, right? So how do you figure out if it's a well, tweet? Well, the thing is, it could be cool if they did a really nice big data analysis of this stuff and talked about how fast acting the effect was and all this stuff, but it doesn't look like there's a whole lot of that. I think it's basically one of these effects where if you have enough data, like something will pop out, right? Sure. Well, OKCupid okay, yeah. is great at pull it, doing really uh, neat big data analyses on their on their uh, data set. But the OKCupid okay, ones are... Well, I don't know. They're not in PNIS, first of all. <laughs> right, but they're much cooler than this paper, which is. Oh, yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> in Soviet <laughs> Russia, okay, Cupid puts PNIS in you. Wow. Right, t- cut that one out. That one was not good enough. I I, <laughs> I, I had something kind of, but it wasn't quite there. Do you know, I think that's one of those things where he never actually said in Soviet Russia. Well, do you know the actual... Um, I actually just listened to an interview with Yakov Smirnov, who's actually a charming man. Do you know the actual joke that that's based on? It's one of the, like, Radio Yevren ones, right? The what? So there's this whole, like, I somehow got sucked into this wormhole of, uh, <laughs> like, Soviet-slash-Warsaw-packed humor. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's bizarrely fascinating. But there's all these jokes where it's... Well, here, you tell it. I'll see if I can find some of the better uh, radio jokes. Okay. I mean, I can tell you the actual Yakov Smirnov joke, which is, in fact, a pretty good uh, joke. The basic joke is, I, you know, I just came to America, and I love it here. 
wherever wherever you go, everyone's always having a good time. You know, it's so easy to find a party. Whereas in Soviet Russia, party finds you. <laughs> what a country. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, that's a pretty good joke. But that that was the actual in Soviet Russia. I, I don't know if he actually said the phrase in Soviet Russia, but he certainly had to say like in Russia or whatever to make it to make it work. But it wasn't like he wasn't saying that every sentence. That was one joke that contained the phrase in Soviet Russia. But it uh, it built his career, I guess. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. The what a, the what a country thing was the essence of his career. But yeah. So there's that, and then there's this other genre of jokes where it's like a radio announcer uh, with questions and answers. Oh, okay. Where's the good one? Armenian radio was asked, "Is it true that in Moscow, Mercedes cars are being given to citizens?" The Armenian radio answers, "Yes, but it's not Moscow, but Leningrad." Not Mercedes, but Ladas, which are shitty cars. Okay. And not given to, but stolen from. <laughs> that's uh, okay. I, that's, that's not bad. There's just a whole genre of those where, like, the entire premise is flipped. Yeah. That's sort of like the, the Latvia jokes that go around Reddit. Just, just kidding. There is no potato. <laughs> the Armenian radio was asked, is it possible to live life to the fullest in the Soviet Union? The Armenian radio answers, yes, if you like crowded trains. <laughs> but um, it was a different time and a different place i'm trying to read the actual size of the manipulation in this facebook study so we can move on but i'm having a hard time multitasking because it's dense i don't think the paper says they talk about like what percentage of posts are positive and what are negative um i guess good news is that oh 46.8 percent of posts contain positive words and only 22.4 percent contain negative words so we're about twice as happy as we are sad apparently i found it but it's terrible okay it says, in these conditions, when a person loaded their news feed, posts that contain the emotional content of the relevant emotional valiance, either, so either happy or sad, each emotional post had between a 10 and 90% chance, based on their user ID, of being omitted from the news feed for that specific viewing. I'm still not sure what that sentence means, but okay. So, so they, but it depends on how many posts your friends post, right? So this is like a totally useless way of measuring it. Yeah. So it says, for a person for whom 10% of posts contained positive content were omitted, an appropriate control would be to withhold 10% of 48.6%, that's the percent of happy posts, yeah. or 46.8%, i.e. 4.68% of posts at random, depending with only omitting 2.24% of the newsfeed in the negatively reduced control. Yeah. But that's, no, that's crap. You can't do that. Yeah, there's a, I mean, this is why I think you don't do this kind of research on Facebook posts. You have people come into a lab and delicately manipulate the story that they read to have like two more negative words or two more positive words or whatever, but whatever. Um, I should also note that like in that same paragraph, they do say in the original paper as such. So, so they say this all ran through an automated system so that no text was seen by the researchers as such. It was consistent with Facebook's data use policy to which all users agree prior to creating an account on Facebook constituting informed consent for this research. Although that's, well, that's debatable, right? Cause I would depend on when you joined Facebook also. It would, I, I presume, although I, well, that is true. Like Facebook is somewhat unique in that unlike iTunes, which every time you install a new version, like makes you, agree to the the terms of use again i created a facebook account in yeah, like whatever year it launched because yeah. yeah i mean it started off just in like the prestigious universities that we attended um <laughs> so after harvard i think like we were the next on the list and i created one like you know within months after when it first launched about the same time i made my friendster profile and uh 
need to get on that again. I have not responded to all of my Friendster messages in, oh, seven years. Oh, did you see Orchid is going away? I didn't know Orchid was still around. It's apparently wildly popular in Brazil and India. Oh, okay. It's one of those things where it's got a weird country that loves it. Yeah. But no, it, it is going away. Google Plus for everyone. Oh, good. Yay. But yeah, like I, I've, I've never seen an updated terms of service for Facebook. Well, I think it says that by continuing to use it, I think it says by continuing to use it, you agree that to whatever well, terms they change. They just modify it at will. But there's yeah. no way that could actually hold up. No, I mean, that's, well, that's sort of like, you know, when we get informed consent and real research. Right. If you change one thing, you have to go back and be like, hi. Well, not only that, and you also can't just like put the paper in front of the participant and be like, this just says some things, just sign it. Now, granted, like when you have participated in the same labs experiments like 20 times, you probably don't read it that closely, but you have to kind of make a good faith effort to make the person understand what they're getting into. I always enjoyed it when you walked me through the consent form in excruciating detail. Yeah. Yes. Uh, every time Krauss participated in one of my experiments, in case the IRB is listening, I made him read every word aloud to me twice. You actually did, and I could never make you crack up during it, which was disappointing. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, so that's the Facebook. I guess the conclusion is meh. So the conclusion is I don't like it. I would poke it with a stick. Yeah. Into the yeah. garbage. Anyway, yeah, it's not even the best example of that kind of finding. So poop on you, Facebook. Cool. All right, new topic? Sure. Do we want to continue to be... Uh, do you want to just continue the anger parade? I think people people like that. I feel bad continuing to rag on PNAS, but yeah, let's do it. Is that the um, is that the Hurricanes? Yes. Was that published in the PNAS? Indeed it was. Uh, I look forward, given that my advisor was just named to the National Academy of Sciences, I look forward to enjoying the same privilege. No, I call dibs on at least one of Marsha's bogus communications. Yes. So for people who are are unfamiliar with this. Uh, so it's the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, which is in theory prestigious. Well, the Academy is very prestigious. The Academy is very prestigious. But one of the perks of membership is used to be that you could like directly submit papers and they would publish them in this journal. So if you were a member, you could send in like basically any old junk you have lying around. Whereas if you're well, a regular it, it still schlub... It gets reviewed, right? But it doesn't, well, it, it's not subjected to quite the same scrutiny. It used to be like minimal review. Yeah. And somewhat recently, they've ratcheted up the, the things. But you still get to pick your editor. You get to pick your reviewers. And uh, they don't need to be... It's not like... Uh, like, say when you send something to Nature, right? It goes out for reviews. If the reviews are bad, that's it. You're done. Yeah. So actually, do you remember what I told you to ask me about? Uh, no, but I'm glad you remembered to ask me to ask you to talk about it. Butterfly sex? Oh, right. Yes. So there was this expose in Nature News about basically PIs abusing their PNAS submission perks. Okay. And one of them, so there's actually a fair number at Yale. Bad. Mm. So one of the hilarious examples was there's this guy who believes that butterflies and caterpillars are different species. I feel like that's something that would not take very long to verify. And that the sort of caterpillar stage was uh, produced by, like, two different species of insects getting it on. Is this person, like, like 10 years old? No, what? it's just absolutely insane. Okay. And so he... I can't remember if he submitted it. He's somehow in the National Academy of Sciences, or he has, like, a close friend who is. But yes. uh, 
<laughs> so he got this in PNAS? Yeah, but there was this horrible quote from the... No, it was a member who communicated it. So she went out for like six or seven reviews until she got two positive reviews, and then this thing was submitted and mm. published. That's not good. No. Peer review... Well, this this is a whole... This is like a, a days-long rant for us, but the peer review system is just totally broken anyway, but it doesn't help when there's kind of a fast-track review system, yeah. Well, the problem is that, like, if the rest of the reviews weren't broken, I don't think people would abuse it quite so badly. Well, that's true, too, but it is kind of freaky because, you know, you send out a paper. I, I don't know if I mentioned this to you recently, but uh, I just reviewed a paper that was like like it wasn't, say, Mengele at all. But it was not a great paper, so I gave it a fairly critical review. And then I got back the editorial comments, and the first re- there were only two reviewers on the paper, and it was for, I think, a pretty good journal. Yeah, it was for a pretty good journal. The first reviewer was like, yeah, it looks pretty good to me. Maybe cite a couple of my papers, and you're good to go, man. And I was like, Did, what? No. So I have, I have a revolutionary peer review idea. I'm actually totally serious about this. Go on. Okay. So everyone reviews the paper, like you do, and then all the reviews get mailed to all the other reviewers. So if you're reviewer number one, you get review number two and review number three. Right. And, you know, likewise. Okay, so once you've got that, there's a little checkbox. There's two checkboxes next to the other person's review, but next to each, like, bullet point paragraph. Checkbox number one is, I completely agree with this, and either I mentioned it in my own review, or I should have mentioned it. You know, like, I endorse this, like, this is a very important point that needs to be addressed or whatever. Checkbox number two is, this is absolutely ridiculous. And, like, this person should be poked with flaming hot pokers. (laughs) Yeah. That's it. Because my big gripe is you get... You get two, like, totally contradictory reviews back, and the editor is like, please address the reviewer's concerns and resubmit. And you're like, yeah, okay. Well, that's the thing. is if And if you fight hard enough, eventually you can often overturn the less reasonable reviews. Not always, which is very frustrating. But, yeah, oftentimes one reviewer is like, this is amazing. And another reviewer is like, this is complete garbage. And, you know, it's hard to, like, you're like, well, who's right? It's kind of 50-50 here. So uh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what to do about it, really. Because two or three people reviewing something is still not enough to get a great consensus especially if one or two of them are kind of cursory it just and what often happens is you get like one or two that are kind of cursory in either a good or bad way right so you can be kind of cursory and be like yeah it looks all right or you can do the kind of cursory thing where you're like i noticed that you use a lot of numbers in this article maybe some of them should be different numbers cursory and critical i think is the worst and then there's like scathing and lengthy and critical yeah well there's also the this is not the thing I wanted to read review, which is impossible well, yeah. to address. You're like, okay, well, I will just rejigger my entire career to handle that for you, bud. I guess it's the statute of limitations has run out on the grant proposal. This is a little bit different, but the grant proposal you submitted for a monkey cell recording project, and the reviewer suggested that you perform... Well, what was the uh, reviewer's suggestion? <laughs> oh, that it would be better performed in fruit flies. Yeah. A little bit of a different research question. So the experiment involves tracking monkey's eyes as they looked at scenes, and then having training the monkey to push a lever when he saw certain things. All things that fruit flies totally do. Yeah, I don't even know if you could build a lever that a fruit fly could press. <clears throat> flies, flies have like a million I eyes. Feel like, I feel like there's a um, an insult to be made. Never mind. 
You're pretty fly for a white guy. Oh, hey, yeah. Go on. Sorry, I I was interrupting you once again with with tiny penis jokes. That that was basically it. Yeah. So you you did not do that experiment in a compound eye because that made no sense. But nonetheless. Oh yeah. Also, flies don't really make eye movements, which would be a small problem yeah. from recording from eye movement related brain structures. Yeah, I'd say there's numerous, and also flies don't have those brain structures because flies don't have. Well, Cortex. a brain. Well, yeah, they have a brain of some sort. They have a, a ganglion, I suppose. I guess they have a brain, right? Yeah, yeah. They have the the, the mushroom bodies. Mm-hmm. Well, you're not taking that setup? Come on. I, I, I made a smirking noise. Oh. Maybe it didn't come across. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, so peer review sucks and is broken. And But, you know, <clears throat> the problem is, like, all the good solutions require you to spend more time in the reviews, and we're all... I mean, I don't have to do that many, but I still find it a burden. Well, I feel like my solution would add probably no more than 10 minutes to, to the average review. Yeah, re-review would be nice. Or if you could, I mean, I guess what I was going to say, like, if the if there were a way to sort of request, you know, a counterpoint review specifically, but then I guess everyone would utilize that, so it wouldn't be that helpful. Well, I mean, I think you can if you go back and you're like, look, this person is clearly out of line. Like, I, re- I recently received a review where... The reviewer said three times that I was making ad hominem attacks on <laughs> a, a piece of algebra, mm. which is interesting in not being a homonym. Yeah. Lacks the critical component ad, of... Ad, ad numerum? Yes. Numbers are people too, friend. All right. Well, anyway, getting back to the actual... Let me segue here. So you said that this uh, bad PNAS paper was about butterflies... But let's say a butterfly were to flap its wings in Tokyo. I don't like where this is going, but okay. <laughs> uh, I was just going for like the whole butter. Like <laughs> then we get a hurricane in Florida, that kind of thing. Thank you, uh, Malcolm. What was his name? Ian Malcolm. Ah, not Malcolm Tucker. Never mind. So going from butterflies to hurricanes in a somewhat more direct fashion. This also went around all over the place. So I suspect a lot of our listeners have heard this study already. But do you want to do the recap on this one? Sorry, I didn't know where you were going with that. Oh, that's where that's where we were originally going with the PNAS discussion, because that's where this was, sure. right? So, yeah. So here's another paper we hate from PNAS. The shtick is kind of interesting. So it's from these guys at Princeton. Oh, uh, wait, no. I take that back. They're from... Uh, Illinois and Arizona State, yeah. Yeah, including an actual statistician, which is a little disheartening. And so they claim that hurricanes that are given... So as you may know, hurricanes are named. So you have, like, Hurricane Andrew and Hurricane Sandy or whatever. So yeah. they're alphabetical, and the names alternate between male and female names, I think, depending on the year. I thought it was every other hurricane got a different gender name, but let, let me, I'll look that up while you continue. Okay. This paper claims that hurricanes with female names are much more deadly than hurricanes with male names, even after you correct for, you know, the size of the storm or whatever. Right. And they claim that laboratory experiments indicate that this is because hurricane names lead to gender-based expectations about the severity. That is, a male hurricane is thought to be meaner than a female hurricane. And so people are like, oh, Hurricane Sandy, I'm going to get drunk in my yard. (laughs) She sounds pretty and nice. Whereas when it's Hurricane Sean, people are like, oh, that sounds like a dude's name. We better book it. Right. And yeah, so that's the alleged shtick of this paper. But sort of like the Facebook paper, it's just horribly, horribly flawed. Yeah. Well, so uh, just to interject before we go any further. Yeah, I think it's what I said. So uh, in 2013, our storms were Tropical Storm Andrea, Tropical Storm Barry. Some of these sound more threatening than others. It's true. Tropical Storm Chantal, uh, Tropical Storm Dorian, uh, 
that one just seemed like it never went away. Uh, Tropical Storm Aaron, Tropical Storm Fernand, Tropical Storm Gabrielle, and so forth. Um, and then the not uninterestingly named Tropical Depression 8. I don't know what... Oh, I guess that one didn't... That I guess depressions don't get named. No, it's got a... Well, I don't know. Because then that was followed by Hurricane Umberto, Hurricane Ingrid. So I guess, yeah, hurricanes and tropical storms get named. Anyway, so it, yeah, it goes alphabetically and seems to alternate by gender. And, all right, so lest you think that you're getting sort of the press release version where everything is oversold, the actual title of this paper is... Female hurricanes are deadlier than male hurricanes. <laughs> Full stop. Yeah. Before we go on to say why this is true, my solution to this when I first read this is to just name every hurricane with a terrible name like Hurricane Skeletor or Hurricane Voldemort and just make them all horrendously scary. Well, that's sort of the author's policy prescription is that it should be named like the name should be <laughs> Hurricane Destructatron. Yeah. And I mean, I kind of like this idea where you could you could sort of taper things around people's existing biases to make them do stuff, right? Right. Uh, there's a whole book about this called Nudge, where I think it's Cass Surstein. Yeah, I don't know this one. It sounds like a Malcolm Gladwell type title, but uh, hopefully a more scientifically rigorous. Yeah, well, it, it's sort of, well, eh. Blink, blink, nudge, nudge. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> oh, that, that would be a good critique. <laughs> but his basic his idea is you know you could set up like i wasn't defaults. sure if i liked the tipping point but as i read on i was like well okay i liked it never mind blink blink tipping point yeah i got it <laughs> uh, it took me ten thousand hours to never mind that, that that's a that's another piece of Something. Monkey signature, as I will call it from now on. <laughs> I don't, yeah, well, we can... Malcolm Gladwell is a, a topic for another time, I think. I We've we've kind of discussed him offline. I He gets a bad... I don't know. He gets both too good and too bad of a rap at the same time, if that's possible. Yeah, on average, he probably gets the rap he deserves. Yeah. All right, so I'm afraid <laughs> to sign in to get this paper direct... Uh, to look at it again. But basically... So there are a whole slew of problems with the paper. So we'll start with one. Is that Hurricane's... Until recently, we were only given female names. Right. Until, uh, what was that? Until... Uh, it's it's in the 70s. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They started getting male names in 1979. Okay. So what they did, and this is... I'd actually be interested in your opinion on this, is they took all the names, including the ones uh, from the 50s and 60s, which also showed up in their data set, and right. they said they got some some people... To rank them. They said, you know, how manly or how uh, feminine is this name? Right. So you could imagine that, like, Hurricane Butch would be, like, super manly. Whereas right. Hur Hurricane Floyd, you're sort of like, meh. Yeah. Oh, sorry, not Hurricane. Just just Butch, right? When you right, think right, of Butch, yeah. you think of, like, a Hells Angels dude in a leather jacket. Right. And, like, Floyd or Cyril Figgis <laughs> is some sort of accountant. Right. And then they use this sort of... So even for female names, you could do this, right? Where you have a spectrum of some names are very feminine, some names are very masculine, or some sure. names are less feminine, or and you some know, neutral. Names, some names are gender neutral, sort of depending on the like Hurricane Sandy yeah. is theoretically a male or female name, which they mention. Yeah, um, I believe it's Hurricane Pat. Hurricane what? It's Pat. Oh right. <laughs> I'm not sure whether you'd be scared of this hurricane or not. Uh, although actually, Hurricane Sandy got ranked as very feminine, so I guess like Sandy as a boy's name is kind of out of fashion. Yeah. So, uh, how do you feel about that practice in general? Um, so I guess the point was to correlate masculine and 
masculinity and uh, femininity, and to to do a, a correlation, right with the with the number of deaths, which uh, I see the graph here, doing that, and in theory that sort of makes sense. Except if you look at the distribution of the masculine femininity, it's pretty bimodal, right? Yes, like all the. Uh, male names are clustered right over there by two. All the female names are clustered right over there by 11. <laughs> this scale apparently goes to 11. It's one butcher. <laughs> it's, it's, one, it's one more. Is it, is it one butcher or one it's one It's one femininier. It's actually, I'm looking at the richarddawkins.net blog post. So I think this is their, their analysis, not uh, the original papers. But yeah, the femalest name, as they call it, goes to 11. Um, but yeah, there's only like four data points that are between four and seven, which is the middle of the range. And so, you know, from a statistical point of view, as you well know, like if you want to do a correlation, which is a, con so you could do like a correlation or you could do like a t-test, right? Whereas a t-test kind of measures two discrete differences between two discrete groups, whereas correlation measures like a continuous variation. But if your data don't have a lot of meaningful variation in the middle, there's no difference, right? There, or there's not enough of a difference between doing those things. Oh, yeah, for, for sure. So anyway, yeah, so I think there's really no point in that if if there's not a lot of variation in the masculinity and femininity of your names, uh, which there wasn't. So there, there's also, this is also a whopping confound, is that, so these storms are going back to, uh, I think, the mid-50s, but the gender genderedness of the names was rated by college kids, like current college kids. Oh, like current college kids, yeah, who probably have never heard some of the names used in the 50s before at so all. So there's one, I don't even know how to say it. It's like Ione? It's it's a Greek name. Oh, like Ione Sky from yeah. uh, Say Anything? Yeah. And so that one got rated as fairly masculine. And the mom in, uh, the mom of Anne slash Egg in Arrested Development. In real life or on the show? On the show. She played Pastor Veal's wife. Oh. Whereas, whereas yeah, Pastor yeah. Veal was played by, what's his face from Firefly? The guy who died. Shut up. Spoiler alert. There's no, there's a statute of limitations on spoilers and it's certainly 10 years. <laughs> okay, fine. Uh, Wash, I think was his name. Yeah. What's his, Adam Baldwin, right? No, that's um, Jane. Um, his real name is. Or not Adam. It's, I thought it was Adam. No, uh, completely orthogonal to this. Have you seen that movie? Alan. It's Alan Tudyk. Alan Tudyk. Yeah. Uh, AKA Pirate Steve also. Yes. Um, have you seen that movie? He was in what was it called? The kind of horror movie. No. Someone versus evil. Tucker and Dale versus evil. Oh no! Netflix keeps pushing that on me. It's quite good. I was surprised by like it was one of those things that Reddit went all nuts about. But uh, and I was like, how good could this be really? And it, the answer is quite good actually. Hmm. All right, I'll check it out. Yeah, add it to your queue. Anyway, so continuing my rant, right? So, so the names were not rated by people with the same sort of gender norms. Right. I mean, and to be fair, it's not like they could go back to 1959 and have people rate a list of stuff. Sure. But, uh, yeah. So, so the gender thing, at least the intermediate genders from the, so let's say, 50s to 1979, I think is kind of bogus. Yeah. Right? So it either runs up the N in your, your female group, or you have these sort of nonsense values in the middle. Right. Okay. Yeah. So that's that's problematic, but it, there's bigger problems. Oh, it gets worse. Yeah. <laughs> so hurricanes. It gets so worse. It should. It gets so bad. It should be named like Delilah. <laughs> or should it? <laughs> so 
So Jeremy Fries, who is um, awesome and blogs about statistics, yeah. has this awesome takedown of the paper in 16 points. Oh, nice. That's like several more points than RichardDawkins.net has. Well, so it's funny because they go on about how they have this sophisticated model. Right. So he points out that it, 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 you can replicate it fully yourself in 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 8, 10. Mm, I don't feel like counting all these, but let's call it 30 characters. Okay. So, you know, very sophisticated model. Right. Um, basically, they swapped out typing regress in Stata with uh, negative binomial regression, which is good. Oh. I mean, it should okay. be done, but it's not like they invented anything. Right. And it basically delivers the same thing as a regression, just with, you know, slight tweaks. Well, it's a regression, but on, like, counts, right? I mean, it's the, yeah. right, way to, it's the right way to do it. Right. But it's not, yeah, it's not that surprising. But so the, the thing that he does, which is smart, is, okay, so you can take one of the hurricanes, and you say, okay, Hurricane Andrew caused a lot of damage. It caused, six, it caused 62 people to die. And their model right. predict, fits that pretty well. So it predicts 59 deaths. So the model is like, you know, it's based on like wind speed and all sorts of stuff like that. Sure. All right, so that's pretty reasonable. So now they say, all right, what would happen if we just take Hurricane Andrew, keep all of its physical parameters constant, and we call it Hurricane Andrea instead? Why not? Right, so you, you just just flip the gender. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah. So the model predicts instead that 25,000 people would die. Mm, seems unlikely. Yeah, so that uh, does not really pass the smell test. No. <laughs> what, you didn't hear about that terrible hurricane? I, I, there's a Victor Victoria remake in the uh, in the works here that I think is not going to get off the ground. I'm actually surprised no one has spoofed that while mocking this thing. Yeah. Well, never mind. I don't want. There's a whole other social issue going on that I don't even want to get into. No, I'm trying to think what you might be talking about. Oh, I'm, I'm just. <laughs> this won't go in. But I, I'm talking about like the ridiculous number of posts I see about the word tranny these days. Or maybe that's just that's Facebook trying to make you happy. I yeah, I think that's Facebook trying to whatever, trying to change me in some way or another. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I don't want to get into that. Anyway, so. Okay, and then finally, so the whole effect is driven basically by Hurricane Andrew, which was massive, but people didn't really die, in right. Diane, which killed a lot of people, mostly because it was in 1955, before we had, you know, like, safety codes and stuff. Yeah. So if you take those two hurricanes out, the entire model falls apart. Well, and also it looks like if you take out Hurricane Sandy alone, it kind of kills the model, too. Oh, yes, Sandy kills the model pretty well. If you just use the data from when there were both boy and girl hurricanes... That kills the paper. Yeah. In fact, I think it makes the relationship slightly go the other way. If I it does, it flips. If it completely yeah. flips. It not only changes the magnitude, but it flips the sign. Whoops. Yeah. So basically, it's a terrible paper. Yeah. So there's there's basically nothing to it. Yeah. The only good thing to come out of it is all the critiques which have talked about the hurricane study, which is spelled H E R dash hurricane. Yeah, I was wondering if we we're gonna get through this discussion without a hurricane himicane discussion, but yeah, yeah, meh. Meh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's that's the end of my ranting. Let's talk about something happy. Uh thirteen year old Ukrainian boys? You ever been in a Turkish prison, Johnson? <laughs> I like to watch movies about gladiators. I think I mentioned this before, but did you know that Leslie Nielsen like would not hang out with that kid when they weren't actually <laughs> shooting because he was afraid that people would think he was actually a pedophile. Would think he was creepy by... Uh, it wasn't Leslie Nielsen, it was uh, Peter Graves, but yeah. Yeah, 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 sorry. Yeah, I could see that, kind of. 
And apparently, uh, years later, he apologized to the kid and was like, sorry, I just was trying to keep things... Uh... Just trying to keep it above ground. Exactly. Yeah. So this, again, this is, I think everyone's already heard about, so we could just give our quick gloss on it. The whole thing that went around and then the backlash went around just like these last two studies where they claimed that a computer program has passed the Turing test for the first time with the caveat that that's with... So the Turing test, in extreme brief, is basically... Alan Turing's proposal that uh, one way that we could measure when we've developed real artificial intelligence is if you basically have people type messages back and forth to either a human being or a machine. And if the people can't tell whether or not the respondent is the human or the machine, then obviously you've got a sufficiently good artificial intelligence that you can't tell the difference anymore when you don't get to be in the room with it, seeing who's typing to you. So it was claimed that we have achieved that, and of course we have not. Do you have anything to add to that so far? Well, I mean, many things. So first of all, I don't quite get the fascination with the Turing test, because no one who actually does AI seems to give a shit about it. Right? It's like, I, Turing initially proposed it as like a thought experiment. Actually, do you know the initial Turing test, which is not the Turing test you're thinking of? No, I do not. Please elaborate. So the initial Turing test was that he had a man and a woman... And the man had to pretend to be a woman and vice versa. Shades of Hurricane Andrew Andrea. Look at my stagecraft. It's all coming back. Yes, yeah, so the initial <laughs> Turing test was, could a man pretend to be a woman? <laughs> or a woman a man? And then, could a computer pretend to be a man as well as a woman could pretend to be a man? Or vice versa? Oh, look at me. I never listen and never take out the garbage. Well, I mean... That's what I'm imagining is... You know. I just want to talk about my feelings. <laughs> I just like to sit around and scratch myself and watch basketball. Dude. Yeah. <laughs> but in in the context, you can see that he's just sort of like spinballing, like, you know, maybe someday a computer will be this smart. It's not like he's like, okay, so here is the procedure. We will have two computers, which do not really exist yet. Right, yeah. It's clear. It's one of those things to just make you think. It's like if you wanted to say that Schrodinger's like life work was he would go to the pound and he would get some cats and put them in a box. <laughs> yes. Then he would go to Home Depot and get some poison. Schrodinger was not an actual cat, you know, probabilistic cat genocide person. Yeah, Mrs. Schrodinger was not like, Jesus Christ, Erwin. <laughs> you really got to clean out the garage. <laughs> <laughs> what is with all these boxes of dead cats? Well, they wouldn't be boxes of dead cats if you didn't, st didn't keep opening them. <laughs> yeah, just, just keep it to yourself. Keep them closed. Keep them half-dead. You don't have to feed a half-dead cat. <laughs> so, all right. So let's ignore for the fact that the Turing test is not what everyone thinks is the Turing test. And also that no one really cares about the Turing test. Everyone is too busy manipulating your Facebook feeds to make you happy or sad. Right, exactly. So this guy claims to have built a chatbot that can mimic a 13-year-old. But he's sort of cheating, right? Oh, he's so cheating. So his shtick was that he pretends to be he pretends to be from Ukraine talking to non-Ukrainians. And so like all the responses are weird non sequiturs and sort of betray understandings uh, misunderstandings of English, which is what you'd right. expect from like a small foreign child. Well, in a in a sense although I here's I propose something. Are you on the um Kurzweil AI.net page by any chance that's in our show? Oh god. Do I have to click on that? I mean he's He's just as bad. I would, I would like us to do a dramatic reading of Ray Kurzweil's conversation with this chatbot, and our readers can maybe decide whether or not they find this a convincing conversation. Okay, hold on. It's loading. 
Would you like to be Ray Kurzweil or the uh, Ukrainian chatbot boy? Or do you want to switch off? I want to be the chatbot. Okay. I want to be the chatbot some too because I want to do the Ukrainian accent. All right, we'll alternate then. So, yeah, let's alternate. But you can be the chatbot first. I really want to hear you actually say the do the first uh, line of the dialogue. Are you are you on the? On I, I'm, the I'm waiting for you. Okay. How old are you? I'm a little boy, thirteen years old. How much is two plus two? Now I am sure you are one of those crazy robots from Great Robot Cabal, and I know you are password two plus two equals four point oh. That's not a dead giveaway. Now divide by zero and die. (laughs) If I have two marbles in a bowl and I add two more, how many marbles are in the bowl now? Not too many, but I can't tell you the exact number. I forgot it. If I'm not mistaken, you still didn't tell me where you live. Capital O, capital R. It's a secret? Smiley face. I live in the capital of the United States. Do you know where that is? Every nerd knows that the capital of the United States is Washington. False, it is Washington. Alright, you want to switch off? I wanna <laughs> I wanna be a Ukrainian boy now. Okay, I'll do the questions. Question I live in the capital of a country that built the Great Wall. Tell me more about capital. I like to learn about different places. That's a... my Ukrainian is no better. In fact, I think it is much worse. You sound like Nikolai Jakov. <laughs> Question How old were you when you started to wear glasses? No, I was not. How can you think so? If I'm not mistaken. You still didn't tell me where you live. Or it's a secret, smiley face emoticon. Question. I did tell you where I live. I told you several times. Do you remember? Oh, damn. Poor confused cyborg you are. Those malicious robots erased your memory. You don't remember your dwelling place. Do you remember at least your serial number? That's actually fairly funny. It's, I mean, it's just weird. In Soviet Russia... The sort of aggressive counterattack, no, you're the robot, doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's sort of me thinks the the algorithm doth protest too much. Yeah, that's the perfect way of putting it. Yeah, also, it's just dumb, right? Like, like. Also, how dumb is the judge? There's like clearly, so three times in this, you know, like one page transcript, it says capital O, capital R, it's a secret question mark smiley face. Yeah, well, I don't know if you noticed this, but also I think... of the judges being fooled was somehow claimed to be enough. The majority of the judges were not fooled. And I'm assuming the remaining ones did not talk to this thing very long or did not really try that hard to make it give away its secrets. It's honestly not much better than, like, Eliza. No, I don't think it is any better than Eliza. Which, do you want to explain what Eliza was while I read up on this other thing? Eliza was just this, uh, it was this chatbot like this one. But it was intended to be a therapist, so it would just ask you like very vague, right. open-ended questions, like, "So, how do you feel about now?" And you previously mentioned, yeah, yeah. It was, I mean, and it, you know, I remember in like 1994, whenever I had Eliza on our family computer, you know, it was good for a laugh. It was like fairly good about. It would say like, "Hello, Matthew," or it would be like, "What is your name?" And you'd be like, "Matthew." It'd be like, "Hello, Matthew. How was your day?" And I'd be like, "Oh, it was all right." Tell me why it was all right. You know it. It passes for the first few sentences. Yeah, I mean... But it's not very smart. It's not like drawing on world knowledge or anything like that. It's just repeating things and it knows how to rephrase things as a question sometimes. Oh, God, I hadn't realized Kevin Warwick was involved in this. Oh, yeah, so he's the, he's the guy that that is claiming this. Oh, he's the guy who made it? Oh, that explains or, so much. Wait a minute. No, 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 wait. Uh, yeah, I believe this is the guy. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, it is. It is Professor Kevin Warwick, who apparently oh. has a long history of making ridiculous claims. So he had, I think it was like a Bluetooth. No, he had something implanted in his arm that does like absolutely nothing. I think it's like an RFID chip. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And so, you know, he can control doors and stuff like this. And he claims this makes him a cyborg. But it just makes him an idiot because he's going to get an infection in it. And then he had some other thing where he made a big deal about, like, inventing deep brain stimulation. But it's just like, hey, we're going to do some control theory and adjust someone else's deep brain stimulator. Yeah. And he's working on this. He also is (laughs) in charge of this EU thing about, like, whether robots should have rights. And ah, he's just a crackpot. Yeah. Well, so the only thing, so speaking of crackpots, you were initially resistant to going on this page because it's Ray Kurzweil's webpage, who is a, I don't know how you get this job title, but he's a futurist. I think you just make a business card that says futurist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, it, and you write it in like invisible ink and then like a day later it shows up. So you look like you've predicted the future. Actually, that, that would, would be genius. Cool. <laughs> I want to get... <laughs> I totally want to give out business cards that slowly reveal, like, hire this guy. Yes. Oh, God. All right. I have a new project. There, there, is, that, there is something in that. Yeah. Write that down. Patent it quickly. Um, but no. So the, the only thing that I wanted to mention is, so Ray Kurzweil also is full of ridiculous claims, but his ridiculous claims are usually predictions about the future that are unverifiable because it's, you know, currently the present and not the future, which is a good way to make predictions. But in his book, in his 2004 book, the one thing that he got right about the future is that there would be premature announcements like this. So he has this like long-standing bet with another guy about whether or not a computer program would pass the Turing test by 2029. And of course, like a relatively intelligent person, they actually do specify what they mean by that. But anyway, in his book, he, he talks about how 10 years ago, he said that, yeah, a bunch of people would be like, oh, look, I found a machine that passed the Turing test. And this would come out every, you know, once in a while. And by the time that there was consensus that the Turing test had been passed, the actual threshold would have been a long time ago, but it would be basically have been mired in a in a long string of ridiculous claims that weren't the actual thing, and that the actual thing would have just kind of been mushed up in there with all the all the bad press. Yep. And so in that regard, congratulations, Ray Kurzweil. You have predicted the future. I mean, yeah, this is I mean, even Alright, so given his like like, I like his optimism, but it's just so, so over the top. Yeah. He's like, the, he's like a, I don't know, like a Hare Krishna of science. <laughs> Fortunately, he has never confronted me in an airport, but yeah. <laughs> but, so, all right, so I'm reading an excerpt from his book on his webpage, and it says, simply defining machine and human, for example, was not a straightforward matter. Really? Machine? Okay, maybe. Maybe you have some, like, thing that tries to emulate a human, or there's a human somewhere in the loop. But really, you can't define human? Well, I mean, I think their point is... You can define it now. I think their point is that, like, if $20,000 or whatever it is... Is that what it is? Uh, yeah, $20,000 is on the line, and you're stipulating... It is true that, like, if you've got a person with a chip implanted in their brain... I guess. Well, I guess that's still a person. But, you know, yeah, if you if you have a... Let's say you culture a bunch of neurons in a dish and make a biological computer out of that. Does that count as a computer or does that count? It is not a human if it's just a bunch of neurons in a dish, but is it, does it count as a computer? No, I mean, I guess that part's fair. Just defining human seems whenever I have like a contract for something, I don't specifically stipulate that it applies to me and not like a pod person copy of me. (laughs) 
Well, maybe you should. Who was that politician that was claiming his opponent was actually a pod person? Sarah Palin? I don't know. No, no, no. This was a recent uh, claiming opponent. Let's see. There was a thing going around about how Barack Obama's security detail was a was a full of lizard people. <laughs> yeah, that's also weird. So this is, um, yeah, it was a U.S. Congressman. Congressman. A congressman. According to, <laughs> yeah, sorry. A according to his opponent in the primary, Timothy Ray Murray is the guy claiming this. He was claiming that incumbent Oklahoman Congressman Frank Lucas is dead and has been replaced by a body double. Yeah. Which is just, I think that's just um, crazy talk. I don't know what the actual deal with that is. But you know you know the um, syndrome, which I am sort of actually wondering if he suffers from. Oh, what's it called? It has a, it has a good name. That's uh, Capgrass Delusion, I believe, if I remember yes. correctly. Yes. Yeah. So it's uh, actually this segues into um, another kind of cool thing that I wanted to talk about for a minute. In the general category of like crazy, crazy things that happen when you get specific types of brain damage. But the Capgrass delusion is basically the idea that a friend or your significant other or somebody like that has been replaced by an identical looking imposter, according to Wikipedia, like a robot or an alien or body double or something like that. And do you know the, uh, well, I don't know if it's fully 100% understood, but do you know the standard explanation for this? No. I, I believe, if I remember correctly, that it is, at least in certain classical cases, it's thought to, oh, well. This particular bit comes from our, our old friend V.S. Ramachandran. No! no! No stranger to crack... Actually, this is the Crackpot Brain Ideas episode. Oh, it's V.S. Ramachandran in a TED Talk. Come on. Come on! <laughs> I'll take Crackpots for 800, Alex. No, well, and that, we may as well just make this the Crackpot episode, because we've got a couple more. But th- I think the idea, at least, was that you know, if you get damaged to your amygdala or maybe certain other areas involved in emotion, that what you end up with is the ability to visually recognize the person and, and say like, oh, that's Kraus. You know, that's, hey, that's my friend Kraus. But you don't feel, you know, I don't feel the surge of love and whatever I would normally feel when I see you because this emotional link has been severed. And the idea is that that somehow leads you to confabulate that the person's an imposter. I mean, okay, that actually seems somewhat plausible. The thing is, there's what? Yeah. There's like a handful of cases. So, you know. Yeah. It is. That's a whole that's a whole other category. Like, it is kind of crazy. And this sort of plays into um, the other syndrome that I came across recently and just was marveling at. Let me see if I put that up on our show notes. If not, I can find it again real quick. Um, it's the something something syndrome. Oh, Anton Babinski syndrome. Do you know this one? Wait, 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 wait. According to this review. Yes. Which was published in 1986. This is the Capgrass Syndrome? From this figure, we, ep- we estimate a 0.12% prevalence of Capgrass Syndrome in the general population. Capgrass Syndrome is often associated with medical illness. Yeah, you think. <laughs> but 0.12? Doesn't that seem, like, mind-bendingly high? So if you've got, like, 500 Facebook friends, six of them <laughs> think you're a robot imposter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean... So, like, I've probably seen that many people today just walking down the street, and at least one of them was like, that guy's That guy might be a robot. Yeah. It apparently occurs more frequently in females with a female-to-male ratio of three to two. I might have been, 
I mean, I've been accused by women of not being the man they once knew, but I, I thought that was metaphorical. Maybe it was more literal than I realized. Wow, this is kind of crazy. I thought this was one of those weird one-off syndromes where, like, one person has the has the lesion in exactly the wrong spot. Yeah. No, it's a little more common. There are indicators that Capgras syndrome occurs in as many as 20 to 30% of patients with Alzheimer's disease. Associated with epilepsy, pituitary tumor, makes sense. Severe closed head injury, makes sense. Blah, blah, blah. Dementia with Lewy bodies, 16% prevalence. MS, Parkinson's, AIDS, alcoholism, lithium toxicity, and migraine headaches. Oh, now I'm getting mm. a little worried. Yeah. I, yeah, I know some people with some of those later ones. Yeah, I had a wicked headache the other day. Mm. It's really me, Kraus. Regardless of if the Skype makes me sound a little robotic, I swear it's still me. I know it was just Facebook messing with me. Yeah. <laughs> have you All ever of read your friends are robots so this has been on the top of my to read list for ages you've read the yeah. three christs of ypsilanti no so this is tying everything back together again horribly unethical but also kind of amazing so they okay. took three mental patients who had delusions that they were jesus christ yeah and they put the, they put them together in the same ward and were just like work it out <laughs> it can't be all of you pick one <laughs> Yeah, so it's from the 60s, Mental Hospital in Michigan. Three patients, Clyde Benson, Joseph Castle, and Leon Gabor. Wait, no, it's a different one. Okay. Yeah, gotta be. Also, you can tell this is old because we're naming the patients. Yeah. We'll call him, <laughs> we'll call them patients JC1, JC2, and JC3. I don't know. So uh, about 30 years later, he decided that maybe this was not a cool thing to do, either theologically or scientifically. But, yeah. uh,. I don't know. It it sounds cool. There's so many inappropriate jokes I want to make. I think I'm going to withhold most of them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there's a PDF of it online. I'm totally reading this later. Well, some of them involve three people being crucified simultaneously. Well, so basically... Sending out Barabbas. So they basically decided that either... This is according to the Wikipedia summary, because I haven't actually read it. But uh, (laughs) that the other two were nuts, which is shockingly non-introspective or that they were dead or that they were operated by machines so you get sort of the whole spectrum of delusions okay well so this yeah and this ties back into like people are crazy just in general at like how well they can confabulate when their brain when part of their brain stops working so the anton babinski syndrome i don't know if you've got this loaded up but basically it's people that are they have brain damage to their visual parts of their brain in the occipital lobe. I don't know if you've heard of that before, Krauss, but there are visual areas of the brain in the occipital lobe. And uh, yeah, if you get damage, that was sarcasm. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so people who get, you know, certain types of brain damage are cortically blind. You know, they, they can't process visual input anymore, but affirm in the words of Wikipedia, often quite adamantly and in the face of clear evidence of their blindness that they are capable of seeing. Which, it doesn't have a lot of details, but I imagine this is one of the most horrible, but also, you know, kind of hilarious syndromes to have. Because I, I don't know how someone confabulates around the fact that they keep walking into walls. Yeah, that's really weird. But people just, yeah, they just claim that they can see, when in fact, they cannot see. Which sort of the, it's the opposite of blindsight. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, which is like the idea that people are... Are blind, but like they can do certain visual tasks, even though they claim they can't. Like if, what's the classic one? If you have like the a classic one is you throw a ball or something at them. Yeah, if you throw a ball, they'll catch it. Or if you have to like put a piece of paper, or like I think if you tell people to like 
reach out and grab something, you know, they'll be like, I can't grab it. I can't even see it. You're just like, yeah, just pick a place, you know, and then they reach right for it. Yeah, but this is the opposite. And people just claim they can see. It's sort of like the other kind of crazy one that's in the Ramachandran book is, you know, if somebody, um, what is it? If some, sometimes people will like have an arm that's paralyzed. I think it's that. Yeah, if you're paralyzed in your arm, but you still have the arm. Okay. Sometimes people will wake up and like see this arm in their bed. Oh, and like freak out. They'll freak out and they're like, there is this person's arm in my bed. And sometimes they'll like just throw themselves out of bed because they'll be like, ah, it's some dead arm in my bed. Because they can't feel it anymore. They, they, so they see it, but they can't. There's like no feedback from that arm to their brain. And they somehow confabulate that into being like, that's someone else's arm. That's not my arm. That would, I could see that actually. I can't find any good case reports for Anton Babinski. There's one with a child, but I mean, children are weird. Yeah. That's crazy. But it, I mean, obviously it's brain damage. So like, it doesn't have to be that logical, but you would think that if you see the arm coming out of your shoulder and follow it all the way down, that you would go like, oh, I'm paralyzed. Not, oh, that's someone else's arm. But Well, the Babinski thing must include like some frontal component, right? Yeah, I'm not sure actually... The problem is that this is all neuropsych stuff, which usually involves like pretty widespread damage, right? Yeah. So it gets really hard to kind of trace. It's easier now with MRI, I guess, but you know, in a lot of the classic cases, it's sort of hard to tell. Like a lot of stuff gets damaged. So the classic description of this is inadvertently hilarious. This is not only because the patient ordinarily does not volunteer the information that he has become blind, but furthermore, he misleads the entourage by <laughs> behaving and talking as though he were sighted. Attention is aroused, however. When the patient is found to collide with pieces of furniture, to fall over <laughs> objects, and to experience difficulty in finding his way around, he may try to walk through a wall or through a closed door on his way from one room to the other. Suspicion is still further alerted when he begins to describe <laughs> people and objects around him, which, as a matter of fact, are not there at all. The immortal words of McDonald Kreitley people. That would arouse my suspicion. When someone fell down the stairs. <laughs> or walked through a closed door. Yeah, I feel like this is the setup to, like, a particularly dark I Love Lucy episode or something like that. No, it explains the Kool-Aid man. <laughs> oh, sorry. I I meant to go through that wall. I was bringing you this delicious beverage. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We need to write this up. Yeah. Add it to our list of sketches to put on YouTube someday. Yeah, for the neuropsych slash SNL crowd. <laughs> Well, would you like me to tie that all up in one more neat little bow with uh, something I just saw today? Do it. When I say the words Christoph Koch and Francis Crick, how do you react? I might not be. The... My blood pressure probably just went up about 20 <laughs> points. <laughs> yeah, this is a uh, it's 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 crackpot night here at the Super Science Happy Hour. Are we sure it's not pronounced differently? Well, I I won't do my Christoph Koch impression tonight, but he sounds pretty much exactly like Arnold Schwarzenegger, circa like 1989. By the way, Christoph Koch, if you're listening, we deeply respect your work and we will take jobs at the institutions you work at. But well, the thing is, like, some of it is very good, right? Like, no, they do really good research. It just some of it sounds kind of crazy. Oh, speaking of, did I tell you the review I got that's related to him? No. About Brad Pitt. Oh. uh yes but you should you should tell our audience so i i recently submitted a paper where we discussed uh this experiment which christoph Koch was involved in where they recorded from medial temporal lobe in people and they found that neurons were responsive to 
like individual celebrity faces, basically. Right. So we, we sh- this would be a good one to introduce anyway, just for the point of this discussion. So, so one of their big things is they found cells which were responsive to Jennifer Aniston, basically regardless of the actual type of picture, right? So, you know, head on, Jennifer Aniston wearing fancy clothes, Jennifer Aniston in different movies. Even the the name Jennifer Aniston, I believe. Like Yeah, if you write text. out, like, Jennifer Aniston, the cell responded. Yeah. This is a cell in the hippocampus, if I remember correctly. It was, I think it was MTL, but close enough. Right. And it, this was like a big, this was like 2005 or so, and it was a big deal. It was like a nature paper and everything. Yeah. And it was a big deal because, like, there are not many, very, very many individual cell studies in human beings where you could do this kind of research. So I, I don't know if we want to get into the whole theoretical underpinnings, but. Eh, sure, why not? And it sort of flies in the face of what a lot of what we thought was that things are, there's like a very specific representation, right? This cell seems to encode Jennifer Aniston. Right. And, you know, the idea that this is ridiculous was sort of embedded in the idea of a grandmother cell, which is what it was called in the literature, which is that like, basically, you know, you could imagine a brain wherein like the firing of an individual cell corresponded to like an individual phenomenon in the world. Like there's one cell in your brain that responds a whole lot whenever you see your grandmother and never at any other time. Right. Yep. Versus the idea that it's like a much more distributed representation and there are like tens of thousands of cells responding at any given time to like varying combinations of features. And it's kind of the fusion of all that activity that creates the impression of your grandmotherness when you see a picture of your grandmother. Yeah, that's a perfectly good summary. Nice job. It was perfectly cromulent. So the the sort of funny thing about this cell is that it did not respond at all when Jennifer Aniston was accompanied by her then boyfriend, fiance, Par- we'll husband? say paramour. I think her paramour. That's a, that's a classy word. Her paramour, Brad Pitt. And so we talked about how this implies that there's you know some sort of like local processing because you know it's the same thing happened with Brad Pitt like different. Brad Pitt in a stupid hat, Brad Pitt posed this way, Brad Pitt posed that way, all caused the cell to stop firing. And that cell was named Angelina Jolie. Ooh, snap. I should have put that in there, too. So anyway, in this review, we we talk about how this this, uh, local processing is important for generating different stuff. Uh, But the reviewer says, (laughs) the title of section 3.1 is called the, The Normalization Model of Brad Pitt. (laughs) I'm not sure what this is supposed to mean. And then we allude a little bit and says, there is a well-known psychologist at Ohio State by the name of Brad Pitt, but I suspect that is not who is being referred to here. It is a mystery. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. This is accompanied Mm. by a reprinted figure showing the actual Brad Pitt. So, you know. Yeah, I feel like that's that classic attention to detail that we love to see in our reviewers. Yeah. Terrific. We should mention, by the way, that like this paper... It's not like that was a definitive proof that grandmother cells are real or that that's how memories are really represented or anything. It was We still think that ideas and memories are mostly represented in a distributed fashion. It's just that that one particular cell and like other cells like it showed so sort of remarkable specificity, but that's not thought to be like the common situation, right? Like, yeah, there are some cells that seem to have very specific firing or sensitivity profiles to certain things, but it's not thought to be like that common anyway yeah that's pretty good so this was out of the lab of christoph Koch. so that was actually i mean that paper had many good and not so good elements to it because it was a little it was you know it was very important in some ways but kind of sensationalistic but christoph Koch also in recent years has been collaborating with francis crick co-discoverer of dna 
the slightly less nutty co-discoverer of DNA. Wait, is it Francis Crick pining for the for the fjords? Oh yeah, well I guess he's yeah I guess he's dead now. He died in sorry he died in two thousand four, but at the time he was working with Christoph Koch on their consciousness theory. Sorry, I, I misspoke that. Yeah, he's pining for the fjords, um, but at least he's not getting kicked out of his own research center for being racist. Yeah, poor Jim Watson. Not really. Yeah, yeah. Watson and Crick, uh, in addition to possibly stealing the DNA thing from what's her name, Rosalind Franklin. Thank you. <laughs> I guess that sort of proves the <laughs> damage done to her reputation. I guess they didn't steal it, but they did not potentially credit her sufficiently with her work on that. But uh, yeah, Jim Watson, apparently a little bit racist. Francis Crick, working with Christoph Koch on a kind of nutty theory. Well, maybe not so nutty anymore, about the seat of consciousness in the brain. Oh, I know where this is going. <laughs> well, it's a little bit funny. So, you know, they had this hypothesis. So... Consciousness is a whole topic that I think we don't want to get into, really. People people love to want to study consciousness in the brain. I think I've said this before, but one of my favorite grad school moments was walking out of a talk with Dale Lee. It was supposed where the title was all about like the neural basis of consciousness, and Dale looks over at me and says, "I thought he was going to explain consciousness, but all he did was talk about dogs falling asleep." Nice. Yeah, so people love to study or want to study consciousness because it sounds like the holy grail of neuroscience, but nobody can even really agree on what consciousness is, right? Because <laughs> there's like the uninteresting form of consciousness, like, hey, were you conscious of that that red arrow that went across the screen? Oh, you weren't, even though it was on the screen? But that's really just like attention and awareness, right? So that's not that interesting. Yeah. Uh, I think attention and awareness are interesting, but it's not like what makes us human or whatever. Well, you'd be surprised. Yeah. I mean, I think there's an argument to be made that everything we call consciousness is just attention sort of, uh, some of Kumar's wife's friends are philosophers and they were, there's a guy at MIT who thinks like MT and V4 are the seat of consciousness. It's very weird, but his argument is that it's basically the first part of the brain where your sort of expectations modulate neural activity. Like everything up, everything up to that is sort of like passive. Like here's the input. Yes and no, right? I mean, you can modulate the other areas, just not as much. Well, yeah. V4 and MT. I think we've talked about them before, but they're mid mid level visual brain areas, right? So like higher than early visual cortex, lower level than other areas. Yeah. Simple visual features and simple motion, basically, right? Is what they kind of code for. Yeah, pretty much. Well, as far as far as anyone knows, for V4. Yeah, as far as we can tell. But like not not like I uh inferior temporal cortex, which is where you tend to get sensitivity to like complex stimuli like faces and objects and stuff like that. Yeah. But uh V4 sort of like attention does affect it, right? Well, except when you try to make that happen, right? Yeah. <laughs> except when Krauss studies it, in which case all consciousness and awareness goes away. Take that, Christoph Koch. Yeah. So there's that form of consciousness like you like you're aware and then there's like consciousness like awake or asleep but again we kind of understand how that works to a first approximation and i I don't think that's what people often mean when they talk about consciousness also right i i feel like i mean that's the question right like what do people mean by consciousness yeah well so i just i finally finished reading the article in many ways i think i think the attention stuff is more interesting like this is just like an on-off switch well, that's 
Yes. I mean, what is interesting about it is I, now I've not read the actual paper disclaimer, but from this coverage, I mean, the kind of interesting thing is, so basically Christoph Koch and, and Francis Crick had what seemed like kind of the kooky hypothesis before Francis Crick died, that the seat of consciousness was this weird little brain area called the claustrum, which, as I recall, we had a very hard time finding in our neuroanatomy class and getting points for finding it. But it's this weird little kind of stripe of gray matter kind of deep within the brain that doesn't it doesn't really like show up on neuroimaging stuff because it's not very big. We don't know what it does. That's more than fair. The title of this article is, in fact, what is the function of the claustrum? Right. That, that was their old paper, right? Or is it this paper? This is the old paper. But uh, yeah, yeah. many people working on the brain have heard of the claustrum. It was known to Ramonica Hall, but very few have any idea of what it does. Well, we still don't really, right? Like, you never see it pop up in research articles. I mean, I'm, I, every once in a while, I'll see like a little blip of activity in something. But The next citation here is to John Cyril. So, you know, my blood pressure is like through the roof at this point. I actually don't know much about him. The Chinese room dude? Oh, 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 Cyril. Yeah, sorry. I just didn't hear it right. Yeah. Well, let's not even get into whether or not the Chinese room is conscious, because that's, that's, like that's like a Turing test for anger. I'm, actually, maybe we should just see at one point my head actually pops off. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, uh, we can't go any later, any longer, so we can't get into John Searle's Chinese room. That's what she said. Oh, snap. So it is kind of weird. But anyway, they so in this recent finding, they actually got some. So their argument before was based on the fact that, like, it doesn't really seem to do anything, but maybe that's because it does, like everything and it seems to be like widely connected to other brain areas so maybe what it does is kind of like integrate all that information into the unified experience of the world that we might refer to as consciousness is that a fairly good summary yeah so like it's hard to it's hard to describe but like we do feel like there is this conscious awareness of our internal and external world that is different from just the sum of all of the sensory inputs that we have, right? Because we understand how the individual sensory inputs work pretty well, but not how, like, you put it all together, I guess. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. So anyway, that was their hypothesis, but everyone was like, yeah, whatever, Con- you know, seat of consciousness, claustrum, sure thing, guys. But anyway, so now they seem to have found, Christoph Koch and presumably the zombified corpse of Francis Crick have found, uh, well, they have a, a had a patient who had a, for for epilepsy had a uh, an, a series of electrodes you know embedded in her brain to help treat her epilepsy and they often this was the same case with the um, Jennifer Aniston cell right this was an epilepsy patient uh yeah uh was this epi- yeah this was epilepsy yeah so you know in epilepsy like basically you often insert a whole bunch of electrodes into people's deep in people's brains to record where the seizures are coming from and then potentially to like stimulate the brain to try to counter the seizures essentially but you can also use them for research while you're doing that, right? So, Well, no, it's not yeah. even counter, right? So they basically find the part well, that starts the seizures and then scoop it out. Well, yeah. But I guess, but you know, you can also stimulate, right? I guess they don't really... They don't usually, though. I guess they don't usually, yeah. But anyway, in this case, they did stimulate. They, they had the electrodes in here, so they did stimulate her electrode and her claustrum. And basically, what they found is that, like... She it just sort of shut off her awareness of the world. Like she kept breathing. She appeared to stay awake, but just kind of like stared into. Sp- it kind of seems to me. It sounds like they gave her an absent seizure almost. 
Yeah, it sort of reads like that. Where you kind of just drift off and like zone out for a few seconds and then... Well, actually, I didn't see this. Like, similar brainwaves occur during epileptic seizure. Oh, wait, 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 wait. This may have gotten freakishly small worldy. I almost worked for this guy. Kubasi? I think so. <laughs> Crazy. He tried to lure me to stay in D.C. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I should have stayed in D.C. Yeah, well, you could have. Yeah, it could have been in this uh, paper. But anyway, so the, the, the essence of it is like, yeah. The, so if you zap this woman's claustrum, it makes her zone out for as long as you're stimulating the claustrum. And she reports no awareness of what went on for a few seconds. But it's not like, you know, knocking someone out or or putting them to sleep or anything like that. So, you know, maybe there is some something to this claustrum awareness hypothesis or consciousness hypothesis after all. Well, there's a big flaw, though, in that if it's connected to everything... To give you a very stupid metaphor, there's a huge surge protector right by my foot. And if I yeah. turn it off, then everything is going to turn off. But it's not the seat of my computer or the seat of my microwave or the seat of my... Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you could probably get similar... Well, maybe, maybe not. You might be able to get similar results by stimulating other areas like the thalamus or something, which is also a big switch box. Yeah, hard to say. Wait, maybe this is a different Mohammed K-O-U something does epilepsy it's crazy no it's, well, it's at george washington university right yeah i think it's him yeah anyway so yeah i don't have a whole lot to say about that except well maybe the classroom does do something after all and not just frustrate neuroanatomy students it must do something yeah all right so we're at an hour 48 of recording yeah so shall we wrap this up so, yeah, thank you, everyone, for listening to this latest episode of the Super Science Happy Hour with Matt and Matt. Sorry it took us so long, by the way. Let's call this um, Season 2, Episode 1. Well. That explains the writer's strike. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, we, um, we, were, we weren't sure if NBC was going to renew us, but we just got picked up by Yahoo, so it's all good. Six seasons and a faculty position. Yay. No, how about one, two seasons and a faculty position? <laughs> yeah. How about zero more seasons and a faculty position? Yeah, so we'll we'll try to be a little brisker. I think we're kind of both out of the the mire of crap that has been afflicting us, hopefully, and it's summer vacation now and maybe we'll be more prompt. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, I know, we say that every time, but we should invent a penalty. Like, what's my penalty if I don't get this episode up within a week? Do we need to invent like a swear jar? I need to pay you like a dollar every day I don't post the episode. No, that doesn't seem terribly fair. <laughs> Yeah, we need some way of uh, of enforcing this, but whatever. I will read a recent paper by Christoph Koch. Oh, boy. <laughs> In the original accented Austrian. Yes. Uh, Austrian or I, I, Austrian or German, I forget which. Anyway, all right. Well, yes, you should all tell all of your friends about us. Six seasons in tenure. There we go. Yay. I was going to say you should visit us on our various social media platforms. Right. We are on Facebook. Just search for Super Science Happy Hour. We are SSHAPHO on Twitter, S-S-H-A-P-H-O. Our website is sshmm.wordpress.com. You can go there for show notes, although at the time of this speaking, the show notes for the previous episodes still aren't posted, but usually they will be up in a semi-timely fashion. And uh, what other social networks are there? A couple of our episodes are on YouTube. We'll try to get a few more up. And... 
You can find us on iTunes, of course, or wherever fine podcasts are sold. I think that's about it. Yeah, I think that's most of our, our media presence. And uh, if you want, you can donate to the Buy Us Some Better Microphones Fund. And if you are Squarespace, please sponsor us. If you're not Squarespace, please sponsor yeah, us. Yeah, you're also welcome to sponsor us. Will we, is there anything we won't advertise? Mm, tenure track cognitive neuroscience positions? <laughs> yeah, we'll keep those for ourselves. Yeah, we'll address them on a case-by-case basis. If you have something... We'll pass those along in, lo- in lots of three or more. Right. Yeah, if you have something morally questionable you'd like to advertise and other podcasts have rejected you, you know, give us a shot. <laughs> All right. Anything? <laughs> I think that's about it. All right. Well, thanks again, folks, for joining us. All right. See you next time. Bye. No, I went to this um, Boston Job Expo, which wasn't actually that productive because the second I got there, I first of all, it was a one-day thing, and I got there at, like, noon. So, you know, it took took me that long to get to Boston from Connecticut. And then I ran into our, our pal, Dr. Shari Wiseman, the instant I walked in. And she was like, hey, we're going to lunch. You want to come? So uh, that burned off most of the rest of this the day session uh, before I had to leave. But um, I ran to this girl... Uh, this this professional lady, sorry, named who does the podcast and some other podcasts. Mm-hmm. And anyway, she was uh, she was telling me that we were talking about podcasting, and she had this really cool little like interview, like a like a sort of hyper techie dictaphone thing, basically. So I was like, "Ooh, I like your podcast thingy." Um, but anyway, she was saying that one of her things that she does is just takes that thing under. She was she was like, "Oh yeah, I get a lot of noise in my." place too and i just like get under the duvet cover well that's actually what i was doing i scattered a bunch of blankets around me to see if i could clamp down oh, on the yeah. echoes <laughs> yeah well she was really cute so it took all i i all of my mental powers to not be like maybe you could show me sometime how you do that maybe she could uh may- well yeah <laughs> maybe you want to cut this part out <laughs> i was just going to say like now i guess she can't be a guest on our <laughs> podcast because clearly podcasts are live and cannot be edited <laughs> no that that was a good idea but you know sadly it is um approximately one it, well actually as we'll talk about in the podcast in a bit maybe it is hotter than certain stars in my bedroom right now sadly not because of anything i'm doing just because of climate <laughs> i mean i guess john candy was a star <laughs> well but he wasn't a brown dwarf not even taking that it's too easy <laughs> exactly i'll just leave that as a pregnant pause and uh uh, but yeah, uh, you know, so obviously I can't get under a blanket right now, but uh, hopefully it won't be too bad with the motorcycles and stuff. Yeah, I don't know why I am drinking coffee and I just was cooking something on three burners. I'm dying. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't hot until I sat down, though. Well, have you, you've heard the old thing about how drinking a hot beverage actually makes you cooler? It's true. Wait, what? I don't believe that at all. I well, think that's nonsense. I believe that's true. Why is it? How could it be true? I think caffeine is a vaso vaso one of them. We got into this in one of the previous podcasts, and it's a it's complicated. Plus, I think there's a there's like a relief, right? I mean, it might be it might be one of those things like alcohol that it's psychological, but I I, I don't think it's really real because the logic I heard was that like the hot beverage makes you sweat, but usually when it's hot enough to make a difference, you're already sweating as much as you need to be.
or can be. I don't know. I I would look this up, but I don't want us to get too derailed I, on that because we have much better rants to, to do later. No, it's too late. I'm already reading. <laughs> it is sort of amazing that like everyone consumes caffeine somehow. And this is a review I'm reading from 2010, so it's not the newest thing ever. But they're just like, caffeine, who knows how it works? No one knows. According to Iwaka et al., it does this. According to the other guys, it does that. It is crazy. I mean, you know, I guess a lot... Well, you could say the same of alcohol, for example. Like, they're just incredibly dirty drugs, and they target lots of things. Yeah, that's true. Also, this paper is terrible. I take back any credence I was going to give it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Don't touch the credence, man. Well played. (laughs) Thanks. And you have a beverage there, but it's not a white Russian. Actually. It could be, I guess. As far as our listeners know, it is. Um, yeah, I guess I, I left my whiskey back in lab, which <laughs> <laughs> what? Which is the name of my new country song. Yeah, nerd country is going to be a very niche genre. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess red, I white, and blue stimuli. Exactly. I uh, well, right now my liquid that I'm drinking is just red, and I guess I can't whiskey it up this time. So I guess I'll be having a, I'll be podcasting sober tonight, but maybe some other time. Drinking blood. No, I drink this, like, crystal light uh, stuff. I mix the lemonade and the uh, cherry pomegranate flavor, and it's delicious. How are your ovaries these days? <laughs> yeah. I, well, you know, I do have some Costco vodka in the other room. I can make a, uh, like, a, a, a calorie-free Cosmo. That'll definitely make it more manly. It is yeah. funny, though. Like, I don't know why those have such gendered marketing, because everyone likes them. Well, I don't know if you recall, but during grad school, for the longest time, I was I was passionate about the need for someone to successfully market a sweet alcohol for men, because I, that was my point. Is like clearly, you know, guys drink Coke and Sprite. Manhattan's man, Manhattan's. I do like yeah, a Manhattan is nice, but it's not. That's mostly bourbon. It's just a cherry inside that makes it a little sweet. No, I think it has some sugar too. Uh. Not in my recipe, but maybe in some. But yeah, like an old-fashioned, I guess, is a manly drink, and that has uh, sugar in it, for sure. I used to get into this with Ken Kwan. Like, I don't believe that there are manly and girly flavors of ice cream. It's just ice cream. Wait, he he thought there were that ice cream flavors were gendered? Oh yeah, he like laid into me for getting, I don't know, strawberry or raspberry, because it was kind of pinkish. Yeah, I think that's a little silly. I mean, you weren't... Um... Were you eating it, you know, in your underwear while sobbing and watching Bridget Jones's Diary? That's what Ken and I did every weekend. <laughs> oh, I'm a little jealous now, actually. I guess that was that was sexist. Sorry. Sorry, women. I actually enjoyed Bridget Jones's Diary. I don't know that I've ever actually seen it. I mean, it's I not just... it's not a good movie, but it it's it's got funny bits. OK, uh, I mean, you know, I like there are certain feminine associated movies I like. I think When Harry Met Sally is a really good, uh, objectively good movie. I hate to say this. I've never actually seen all of that. It's actually really, I think they teach it sometimes in uh, screenwriting classes because it's just well-structured. Hmm. Yeah, it's good. It, you would like it, I think. All right. Shall we talk about science? Yeah. So um, I guess we'll do our little intro. So uh, welcome, everyone. Wait, wait, wait. Stop the intro. Oh. Stop the intro. Let's just do the intro at the end. Then we can, oh, and say like. Then we can say what we talked about. Okay. And I'm uh, <laughs> I'm going to take, I'm taking notes. We could do, we could start doing one of those. um Coming up on this episode of, of what's our podcast name? The Super Science Happy Hour with Matt. <laughs> oh, this is doomed. 
<laughs> yeah, so we could do the little recap thing, I suppose. But I think we tried that once and we didn't do it very successfully. But that's because we, we, we had no idea what we talked about. <laughs> oh, well, that's true. Okay, yeah, so note-taking would be good. That's also where we can interject the um, Super Science Happy Hour with Matt and Matt is sponsored by Squarespace and Audible.com. Is which it? we're not. Wait, but are we? No. I want my no. check. Where's my check? No, but I figure if we ever do get a sponsor, it'll be Square, Squarespace and uh, and Audible.com because those sponsor every podcast in the world. I want to be sponsored by something awesome like NASA. <laughs> I think NASA has enough of a uh, problem just funding themselves these days. They can fund me. I've gotten really shameless about asking for money. Yeah. Well, I mean, we basically live... Live by the sword. Handout system. Live by the sword, die by the sword. Yeah. But shall we, yeah, shall we start with some actual topics? And I guess the more we stay on topic, the less annoying editing you have to do. Yeah, let's try to keep it kind of quick. And if we go start going long, we can just stop and start another podcast. But let's, uh, let's, let's be brisk and, and try to keep the editing load to a minimum. All right, now we have to do the intro. Yeah. <laughs> You've got the notes. Do you want to do the intro? Uh, let's see. So we have Facebook, peer review, hurricanes, Turing test, Claustrum. They start to get a little muddled towards the end. Yes, goes in here. <laughs> That's definitely what she said. <laughs> that needs to go in at the end. <laughs> that is also what she said. So a study of Facebook, which you may have seen on Facebook. A study about hurricanes and hemicanes, which has also been going around various forms of social media. We'll complain about peer review and some of our competitors, and also Jennifer Aniston. And much, much more. All right, cool. That was actually a pretty good bump. Yeah, I think. <laughs> Another thing she said. <laughs> and I'm scene. Not even, I'm not even trying at this point. Uh, sadly, also in the category of things she has said. Okay, we, we must, we must right. now stop. <laughs> okay, I'm going to also stop. Also what she said. Okay. <laughs> Three. But we will stop the recording now, correct? Yes. Okay. Ready? All right. Yes. And I am stopping. Ceasing.